Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear 
hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, there's a few things in here that aren't what they appear. First off, do you remember where we left off in chapter 4? What, what happened at the end of chapter 4? Remember how Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled by God? He lived as a wild animal for seven years. And at the end of chapter 4, his kingdom was restored. So when we leave off in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. He's ruling in Babylon. Yet chapter 5 starts, and there's this guy named Belshazzar who's ruling, and he's the king. Doesn't say anything about Nebuchadnezzar's death or anything, and it talks about this guy Belshazzar. And if you read it just like it's written here in the English Standard Version in many of your translations, it'll say things like, your father Nebuchadnezzar, or you, his son, Belshazzar. Let me say something to you. This is not a, a physical descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is not a physical descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, if you have a study Bible, you might notice that when it says father in chapter 5 or, your, or you his son in chapter 5, you'll notice there's a little note there. And if you go and look at your note, it'll say it could mean actually mean predecessor or in you his successor. And actually, that's a better translation than father and son, because that makes people think this is Nebuchadnezzar's relative, and it's not. We're going to get to a lot more about who Belshazzar is in a little bit later in our study. And actually, for those of you that love history, I'm going to bomb you with history tonight, because that's very, very important for us to understand and to interpret more of what God's trying to say to the nation of Babylon at the time and to us as well. Plus, a lot of you may not realize this, but that's where people like me doing my job right are hopeful, helpful to you. There's 23 years that pass between the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five. A lot has gone on in the time period. We're going to cover a lot of what's happened in those 23 years. Okay, so tonight, before we break down this chapter, we must pull out a couple of more things from chapter four and look at the recorded history that occurred between these two chapters to better grasp the work of God here in our life. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be doing a study along that line. We'll pull out a couple of things from chapter five. We'll deal with it more in detail uh, next week, but we'll deal with a lot of history that happened between chapter four and chapter five. Now, we've already seen that God gave Nebuchadnezzar many opportunities to humble himself and God's judgments on Nebuchadnezzar produced repentance, correct? I mean, if you remember, he revealed himself through the dream, the first dream of the statue, and then he revealed himself again with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he revealed himself again with making him live like a wild animal. God keeps reintroducing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's produced a repentance. It appears, though, that Belshazzar gets no opportunity for repentance, doesn't it? It appears that God reveals himself, you're going to be killed tonight. That's not really the case. That's not really the case. So we'll deal with some of that tonight. But before we go there, 
Before we deal with why did it look like, why does it look like Nebuchadnezzar has been given all these opportunities to repent and acknowledge that God's God and Belshazzar was not given any opportunity. It appears that way. That's not the case. But if, why does it appear that way? Before we even go there, I want to reintroduce you to who God is. You say, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I know who God is. Please don't ever think you know who God is. Because the more you get to know him, the bigger he gets. And the less you know, the more you realize, the less you know. Actually, the Bible says we're to continually grow in the grace of the Lord and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If any of you ever get to a point where you think, I know God, I'm comfortable, I'm happy, that's a dangerous place to be. You need to understand that he is beyond comprehension, especially in our human minds. But let me reintroduce you to him as well. Go back to Exodus chapter 34. There's some things about who God is that we need to look at tonight. There might be some things that you need to be reminded of. There might be some things you never knew. In Exodus chapter 34, we'll look at verses 1 through 9. God introduces himself to Moses again. He's already done it at the burning bush, but he reveals more of himself. And God gives Moses his name. We'll start in chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Notice God's description of himself. He's a God who's patient with sin. He's merciful. He's a forgiver of iniquities. He's slow to anger. But even though he also has steadfast love, when he knows that there will be no repentance, he will not clear the guilty. He actually says the consequences of some people's sin will even in some way affect three to four generations after them. Let's deal with that for a little bit. Some people have had a hard time with that. They're saying, well, you're saying that, that God's going to send people to hell because of someone else's sin? No, the Bible's very, very clear. God won't do that. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look at verse 16. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, the scripture says this, and this is the law of God. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So God's law is very, very clear that fathers should not be put to death for their children. Children should be put, shouldn't be put to death for their father's sins. Everyone should be put to death for their own sins. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 through 24. 
Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 19. Yet you say, why should, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them, he shall die. So here God says very clearly, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, I want them to repent and live. He also says, look, I'm willing to forgive wickedness. But you have to show a repentance of that wickedness and a turn to righteousness. We know from the whole of Scripture, righteousness is given to us how? Through faith in Jesus Christ, not by anything we do. It's a gift that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. But go back to Exodus 34 and let's look at that again and how God describes himself. I want you to see it because it's very important for you to understand some of these things. In Exodus 34, look again. At verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So it's obvious from the scripture, he's not saying that the third and fourth generations are all going to be sent to hell because of the father's or the grandfather's sin, correct? So what does that mean then? Listen closely. If your sins are judged by God in the sense of God bringing judgment here on this earth, it will affect your children. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what were the consequences of their sin? Besides death and curse on the earth, they were removed from where? From the Garden of Eden. Let me ask you a question. Did any of their kids get to see the Garden of Eden? So you're saying that the consequences of what Adam and Eve did had an effect on their children. Some of you may know, maybe many, hopefully many of you know who Saul is, the first king of Israel, an amazing man at one point. And when you study this, the life of Saul, he started off humble and scared and timid, but he all of a sudden became very, very proud. And God says to him because of an act of disobedience when he doesn't wait on Samuel, when God had told him, wait, but he got nervous and he offered the sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to. God, through the prophet Samuel, comes to him and says, the kingly line will not come through your family anymore. I've chosen somebody else in a different lineage, and he's a man after my own heart, the kingly line's going to come through him. We know it's now David. Does anybody know who Saul, Saul's first son was? Jonathan. By the way, wouldn't you agree Jonathan was an amazing young man? A man of faith who loved the Lord, who trusted the Lord. He was brave with God was going to be in it. He believed God could do it. And he loved David. And he was just an amazing young man. Probably would have made a great king. But the iniquity of his father brought consequences to the fact that Jonathan would never get to be king. 
Listen to me very carefully. A lot of us think, well, what I do doesn't really hurt anybody. No, the choices we make do affect the people behind us. The things we do, do. God says, look, I'm a God that's gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm merciful. I'm wanting to and willing to forgive iniquity and sin. I'm, I have steadfast love, but don't ever think that I won't. I'll just I'll clear the guilty. No, I'll never do that. And folks, let me also just tell you, if you decide to walk in disobedience to me, you're, even your consequences of what you do is going to affect your descendants. It, I'm not going to just turn a blind eye to it. So we need to keep in mind who God is. God's patient. But his warnings are to bring about repentance. Go to 2 Peter 3.9. We all know it pretty well, but I want you to see it. 2 Peter 3.9. This is in response to people saying, where is this coming of Jesus? Everything keeps going on like it always has. I'm not sure he's coming back. By the way, that's a hint to us that was written 2,000 years ago that there was going to be a long period of time between when Jesus came the first time and when he came the second time. Because the scripture said, there's going to be in the last days people who say, where is this coming? Everything's going on. That was a hint to us that it was going to be a while. But look what he says in verse 9. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise about his return, as some people count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Again, we're building some deep theology tonight about who God is, and it's about to get deeper. But we need to be reintroduced to who God is before we jump to any conclusions like Nebuchadnezzar got all these opportunities and Belshazzar didn't get any. No, no, no. God is a God who will never judge somebody else for somebody else's sin. There are going to be consequences maybe because of that. But everyone will die for their own sins. He's a patient God. He's slow to anger. He wants to forgive sin. That's who he is. And at the same time, he's patient. He's wanting everyone to come to repentance. He wants all to be saved. He knows that's not going to be the case. But he does desire, well, we read it in Ezekiel 18. Does the God have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. Go to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, look at verses 18 through 21. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Here God makes a promise to the nation of Israel, but look at how God describes himself. He waits to be gracious to you. He wants to show mercy to you. He's wanting to bless. That's who God is. And his warnings are to bring about repentance so that he can bless because he can't clear the guilty. Go to Psalm 50. Look at verses 16 through 23. Psalm 50, verses 16 through 23. Psalm 50, verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. 
You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. God says, look, I know exactly what you're doing. I, I, there isn't a thing you're doing I don't see and I don't know. I know how you talk. I know how you think. I'm watching everything that you do. I haven't said anything. And you assumed that my silence was that was approval and I was okay with it, but I never have been. And let me just warn you, there's a day of judgment coming. But if you are willing to humble yourself, I'll show you the salvation of God. A lot of times, folks, if we're honest, well, we do know that at the beginning of the nation of Israel, when Achan and his family uh, kept some of the treasured things that God said they weren't to take from the city of Jericho, their whole family was put to death, correct? We also know at the beginning of the church age, God did something else as well, where he was very similar to that, where he brought a great fear of God among the whole church when he killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying about how much they gave to the church. By the way, has God killed everybody who lied? Aren't you glad he doesn't? There'd be nobody left on the earth. But just because he hasn't dealt with it all immediately, like he does sometimes, don't assume that he's okay with it because he's patient, he's merciful, but he's by no means going to clear the guilty. God's warnings are used to bring us to repentance and have us seek him for his forgiveness and his provision for our sin, which we know is Jesus, and to bring us into a right relationship to him through faith. Go to Acts 17. Go to Acts 17. Look at verses 22 through 31. Acts 17, verses 22 and following. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this is in Athens on Mars Hill, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, in case we missed one. What you, therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our, our being. And even if some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't miss this. Paul says, let me introduce you to this God you may not know. And some of us who know him need to understand how he works a little bit better. He's a God that made a whole world and everything in it, and he doesn't need our help. But not only that, he made all of us from one nation of men. By the way, there are no such thing as races. There's only one race, the human race. 
We unfortunately try to divide and say there's black people and white people and all that stuff. And I'm not going to chase that rabbit for right now. But let me just tell you, there's just one race. And we're all different shades of brown. But unfortunately, Satan has caused division because of all this. And, it's, it, it's, and unfortunately, many Christians have fallen into a misunderstanding of the scriptures and, and use scripture even to say that it's okay to have racism and hatred when there's only one race. But listen, he made everyone from one man, Adam, and he determined the time set for us. In other words, when we would live in history and the boundaries of our dwelling place. He determines where we'd live and when. Why? According to the scripture, so that men would seek him. And find him. He determines where he puts us and he orchestrates us so we come to know things that we come to know him. But look at what he says now here again in verse 31. Sorry, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. By the way, he said, look, I've not been dealing with all this sin all the time. I'm patient. I'm merciful. I get to determine when I deal with things and when I don't. But just because I've been silent and it appears that I've overlooked it, don't think that it's not been paid attention to and it's not going to be dealt with. Folks, again, I pray that you begin to ask God to start to speak to you about what may be coming for our nation. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Go to Romans chapter 3. We see it become even more clear in Paul's writings here. In Romans chapter 3, look at verses 19 through 26. He's just said in the beginning of Romans 3 that there's no one righteous, not even one. We're all guilty. But look at Romans 3, verses 19 through 26. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Listen closely. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was also to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, God has his reasons for why he doesn't always deal with things right away. We've already just said, thank God he doesn't. But at the same time, don't think for a second that he's not paying attention to every little thing that's been done. And he says, Just because I haven't dealt with it doesn't mean I'm not going to. Actually, I will. I am a God of justice. But I've given you opportunity to repent. I've given you opportunity to come to me and turn to me. But there comes a point when I determine that opportunity is gone. And when that day comes, there'll be no one to deliver you when I tear you apart, as we saw in Psalm 50. By the way, some of you might know this, but let me just remind you, back in Genesis 15, when Abraham is, cries out to God and he says, you know, you promised me a son, but my wife and I haven't been able to have a kid yet. And it looks like Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir. And God comes to him and says, no, it's not, Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir, but a son from your own body is going to be your heir. And then he makes this promise to him and he says this, know for certain that you're going to be a mighty nation and you're going to have descendants more than you can count. 
But then your descendants are going to go into slavery for 400 years. But then they're going to come out with great wealth. Listen closely to what he says next. For the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. For years, people have said, I didn't like the fact that God took the nation of Israel and he sent them into the land of Canaan and they were to kill everybody and wipe them all out. They weren't to leave anybody alive. God gave them at least 400 years. He says, the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure, but I know when it will. And folks, if he's already set the day of judgment in which he's going to set the whole, judge the whole world, and we've already seen that God determines when kingdoms come up and when kingdoms come down, is there not a chance that God's already set the day when the United States will be no more, if that's his plan, because of disobedience and because of sin? Don't assume that he's not watching. I pray by the end of this lesson, you'll have a heart to pray for our nation. Don't think if we just get enough Christians together and we try to get this movement and get the right people in office, you still don't understand how it works. Laws aren't going to change it. Humility and repentance and humbleness before God. So was God patient with Nebuchadnezzar, but not patient with Belshazzar? According to who we've just seen God is, was God patient with Nebuchadnezzar, but not patient with Belshazzar? I'm sorry? It appears that way, but I'm asking you, was he patient with Nebuchadnezzar and not patient with Belshazzar? I'm sorry? I hope you get this answer right. I got to start all over again. He's patient. He's patient. He has given, I will show you from scripture how he's given him opportunity, how there was a lot that he did know and he didn't respond to it. It may appear from reading chapter four and chapter five that, that it doesn't appear that way, but listen closely. I just reintroduced you to who he is. He's patient. He's merciful. He gives opportunity. He gives light. The Bible says in Romans chapter one that everybody's without excuse because he's revealed himself to all through his creation. His divine qualities, his eternal nature have been clearly seen through what's been made so that all are without excuse. Chapter two, he says, even if you've never heard the law of God, the Gentiles who don't have the law have the law written on their heart, their consciousness convicting them. And all of us have been given a sense of right and wrong. And every one of us have gone against the sense of right and wrong. And he's revealed to us whether we've written, heard his law or not, it's been in our hearts. And we saw in chapter three, that law that, it was, that they received either through the written law or the law he wrote on our hearts, it's to hold the whole world accountable and everyone will be judged before God. But that righteousness that's apart from the law, that the law and the prophets testify to comes through faith in Jesus. And it's always been that way. It's always been, even in the Old Testament, those who had faith in God's provision for their sin. That same David that wrote Psalm 50 also wrote Psalm 51 where he says, God, you wash me clean. You make me new. You're the one that's only going to make me right. I can't make myself right. If you wanted me to sacrifice, I would. What you want is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That you won't despise. What you've shown me all along is that if I humble myself and say, I need you to wash me clean, you will give me righteousness. He was patient with Belshazzar. As we'll see. But before we look at God's patience with him, let's also get something straight. God gets to do things in his world however he wants to. He doesn't have to get our approval. I asked you a question. Was God patient with Nebuchadnezzar and not patient with Belshazzar? The answer is he was patient with both of them because that's who he is. They had opportunity. But I will also say to you, and I'm going to show you this from Scripture, 
that God gets to do things in his world however he wants to. And if he decides to give Nebuchadnezzar five opportunities to repent and Belshazzar one, he gets to do it that way. We're about to go down a road, folks, that I really want you to be, stick with me here because I'm going to take you in a deep study, not in the time that we, I, I would love to because we need to keep moving tonight. A lot of history we need to get to. But in all my traveling around the country, as I go and speak at conferences and different places and churches for a week or so, inevitably people will come and say, you're going to be here for a few days. It's obvious you have a lot of scripture in your heart. Would you be willing to do a question and answer night? And I always say, I'm glad to. I love that kind of a thing. As long as you're okay with me saying, I don't know, because I don't know it all. But I also know that one of the questions that is going to come up is the whole question between Arminianism and Calvinism. Predestination and free will, because the church has been fighting over all this and how God saves for years. And I tell every place that I go, listen closely, I am willing to answer the question of God's, how God saves, whether it's through predestination, free will, all this stuff. I'm willing to answer it on two conditions. One, give me an hour just to answer that one question. Because in order to deal with it faithfully, I need to show you the whole of Scripture and how it all comes together. Two, before I even start answering the question, everybody's got to uncross their arms. <laughs> because whenever I answer that question, nobody wants to hear the answer. They just want to see if I'm on their side of the aisle or the other people's side of the aisle. And I start off by saying everybody must uncross their arms because there's people in here who have crossed their arms and they've already said, I'll never believe in a God who will choose some people to go to heaven and choose some people to go to hell and they don't have a choice. I'll never believe in a God like that. Well, you need to uncross your arms because the Bible says if God wants to, he gets to. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Isaiah chapter 45. Look at Isaiah 45. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? I love that. Can the clay say to the potter, I don't like how you made this. It, 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 you could do a better job. It has no handles. Go to Romans chapter 9. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, verses 20 through 23. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That's where he's quoting from. He has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if? God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, he said, what if God decided, I've chosen these people to go to heaven and I've chosen these people to go to hell? He said, doesn't the potter take that same lump of clay and with it make a vase that holds flowers and another one, a, a bedpan? Can't God get to do it however he wants? He doesn't say he does it that way. We've already seen from scripture that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yet at the same time, he gets to do it however he wants. And we have to be willing to say, you're God, this is your world. 
you made me. I didn't even have a choice whether I was coming into this world. This is by your design, and you've chosen me for this time period, and why am I going to sit here and try to tell you how to run your world? I also tell the other group, the people that are on the sovereignty side, that they think they've got all, God all figured out on how he saves, and they say this, if God is sovereign and God does the saving, if man has any part, God's not sovereign. And I say to those people, uncross your arms. Because you've written a definition of sovereignty that you think God has to now meet. I can show you tonight, we're not going to take the time to get into it tonight because we're not doing the hour study of this. I can show you from scripture that I believe God is so sovereign that he can be in full control of salvation and still give man a choice. And even though man has a choice, God's still in control. We don't have time to get into that tonight, but I could take the time to walk you through that, folks. Did God give Nebuchadnezzar more opportunity than Belshazzar? We don't know. But what if he did? The Bible says he does give some people more opportunity than others. It's his choice. How many of you, show hands, that are saved here tonight? How many of you were knocked off your horse and blinded by God and you heard Jesus speak to you loudly and you had to walk around like a blind person until someone healed you of your blindness like Paul when he got saved? Exactly. God did it for Paul a whole lot different than he did everybody else, didn't he? Not everybody gets that. Go with me real quick to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did know and did what deserved, sorry, did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Look what God says. The judgment of everyone and nations will be in proportion to how much he's revealed to them. If they knew more than other people, the ones who knew more and didn't do it will be judged with a worse, worse judgment. The ones who didn't know as much will be judged less, lessly. Listen, I'm not going to get into it tonight because we can't take it too far, but the Bible teaches that even though hell is eternal for everyone, there's levels of punishment in hell and there's levels of reward in heaven. And to go much further than that, would be go beyond the scriptures, but we have to be faithful to the scripture. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 20 through 24. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Don't miss what he says here. He says, look, because I, God myself, walked amongst you and did the miracles I've done for you here in Capernaum, things I didn't do other places, things I didn't do at other time periods, 
You've seen more, yet you wouldn't repent. Do you think it's going to be easier for you in the day of judgment? It's actually going to be harder. Why? Because those who have been given more, more is going to be required. Let me just ask you a question real quick. Is there a nation that we know of that has received more light than the nation of the United States of America? We at one time were the missionary sending country. We were started under God and formed under God and we have turned away from him. There's a judgment that's coming to this nation if there's not real repentance as a nation. There's a judgment that's coming on this nation that will be more severe than other places because God is who he is. Oh, look at what he said. He said, if the miracles that were done in you, Capernaum, were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Hang on for a second. Our flesh, remember the clay wanted to tell the potter why he didn't have handles? We want to say to God, then why didn't you do that there? I mean, if they would have repented if you had done the miracles there that you did in Capernaum, why didn't you do those miracles then? The answer is because he gets to do things how he wants. Did they have opportunity? Yes. Had he revealed to them enough that they could respond? Yes, because that's who he is. But he doesn't have to do it equally. He doesn't have to do it equally. And you're going to have to lay your flesh on the altar and acknowledge you're God. And you get to do this salvation thing how you want. Go to John chapter 6 real quick and look at verses 44 and 45. In John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, look closely at what it says. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Stop for a second. If no one can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws them. And it says actually in Romans chapter 3, in verse 10, that there's no one righteous. Verse 11, there's no one who understands and no one who even seeks God. But what we know about who God is, what we know about God is that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How can we put this together? If no one comes unless the Father draws them, does he draw everyone? Well, the answer is not only yes, he does draw everyone. Remember, we already said he doesn't give everybody the same amount of drawing, but he does draw everyone. And actually, you, if you kept reading, I stopped you, but if you kept reading, the answer is right here in verse 45. Keep reading in verses 44 and 45 again. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will, some, all, be taught by God. Now, everyone who has heard and learned or listened, some of your translations say, from the Father comes to me. Those who have raised teenagers know there's a big difference between hearing and listening, correct? The Bible says everybody hears. Everybody hears. He's revealed himself through creation. He's revealed himself through his written word. He's revealed himself through missionaries. He's revealed himself through the spirit of God convicting those who don't have the law. By the way, if you go back to Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 16. Paul says, God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, which my gospel declares. Guess what? Everybody in some way or another, the Bible says, has heard about Jesus we for years sitting around thinking that God's impotent and he needs us. Remember, he's not served by human hands if he needed anything. What about those nations that have never heard? There's no such thing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, this gospel which has been preached in all creation. Paul said it in Colossians 1, 23. You can double check me. Romans chapter 10, right after, how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? He goes on and he says, but did they not hear? Of course they did. His word has gone out into all the earth. Folks, let me just tell you something. God doesn't need us to get his work done. He's actually 
been at it for years, and he wants to use us if we'll humble ourselves, but he's able to reveal to everyone what they need to be saved. If they choose to respond to it, good. If they choose to reject it, bad. But don't think that everybody gets an equal amount. God will judge each of us in accordance with how much light we have received from him. But like I said, all get some level of revelation. So did Belshazzar have opportunity to repent before God's judgment on him? Thank you. I didn't think we were going to get to the history tonight because if you answered that one wrong, we had to start over. But not only from what all did we just say is the answer yes, the answer is yes because of what we already read in Daniel chapter 5, and you might have missed it. Go back to Daniel chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 23. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar is not his daddy. Nebuchadnezzar is his predecessor. There's been 23 years between when Nebuchadnezzar's time finished, or so the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Look at Daniel 5, verses 18 and following. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, that your, your predecessor, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hard, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, listen closely, though you knew all this. It's been there the whole time. It's been there the whole time. He did know. Let me give you a little bit of history to show you how much Belshazzar actually did know. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 BC, and he was succeeded to the throne by his son, his actual descendant, and his son's name was Amel Marduk. Actually, that son is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 31 through 34. If you want to double check me, Jeremiah 52, 31 through 34, and 2 Kings 25, 27. 2 Kings 25, 27, and Jeremiah 52, 31 through 34. He's actually described in those places as evil Marduk, all right? But his name was Amel Marduk, it was his son, and he's the one who treated Jehoiakim kindly, and Jehoiakim sat at his table after Nebuchadnezzar died. Now, although Amel Marduk treated Jehoiakim well, the last king of Israel, or of Judah, he didn't rule well. This son of Nebuchadnezzar didn't rule well, and his reign over Babylon was short. He only reigned from 562 to 560 B.C., only two years. By the way, if you don't remember, B.C. years count down. Amel Marduk was succeeded by his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law's name was Neraglisser. And how his brother-in-law, Neraglisser, became king was Neraglisser assassinated Amel Marduk, and he took over the kingdom. His brother-in-law killed him. Neraglisser's reign was actually brief but acceptable, and he died of natural causes after reigning from 560 to 556 B.C. He reigned for about four years, a pretty decent reign, but he died of natural causes. Now, Nerglisser's son, Labashi Marduk, 
lasted only a few months in office after his dad died when he was executed by a rival faction led by a Babylonian noble named Nabonidus. All right, so a Babylonian noble named Nabonidus killed the son of Nergliser, who the son's name was Labashi Marduk, but he only lasted a couple of months in, in power, and not long after coming into power after his dad dying, Nergliser dying of natural causes, this nobleman had a faction with him. His name was Nabonidus. He became king, and he reigned from 556 B.C. until the end of the Babylonian Empire. That's important. I want you to stick with me. He, Nabonidus reigns from 556 B.C. until the end of the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. Why should that cause some of us a problem? Haven't we been looking about, there was a king named Belshazzar. Well, let me explain to you who Belshazzar is. Nabonidus, the king of Babylon from 556 until the end in 539, was an interesting kind of a king. He liked to travel. And so he didn't stay in Babylon a whole lot. He actually built a nice big house outside of Babylon that he built for his wife because she liked to go there. And he would be gone a lot. So he put his son, Belshazzar, in authority and power as co-regent with him over Babylon because he was gone a lot. So his son, good for you. I was going to point that out and you saw it already. That's why the one who solves the riddle or the writing on the wall will be called third ruler in the kingdom because there were two. Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar as co-regents. Daniel became co-regent with them. Not for very long because, as you know, Belshazzar dies that night and everything changes. But listen, Nabonidus, Belshazzar's dad, also did some other things that were kind of bad. He, well, not horrible, but not great, but he, he actually changed the worship for the nation of Babylon. As you remember, Babylon worshiped many gods and Bel and, and Marduk. Well, he started changing all the religious practices and he taught everybody to worship the moon, the moon god Sin. Well, the priests of Marduk didn't like this, that he was introducing a different god and making everybody worship that god more. And there was a lot of unrest. In other words, there were a lot of people in Babylon that weren't too upset that Nabonidus wasn't in town a lot. But there also started happening during this time a crumbling of the Babylonian Empire. Ever after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, the Babylonian Empire began to crumble, losing some of its territory bit by bit because the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians was increasing. Actually, it was the Persians and the Medes were two separate kingdoms. But in 558, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the king of the Medes, which his name was Astyages, A-S-T-Y-A-G-E-S, and he combined their kingdoms in 558. There was a Median kingdom and there was a Persian kingdom, and both kingdoms had been attacking Babylon ever since Nebuchadnezzar died. Remember, God promised that Nebuchadnezzar would have that kind of authority and he would have reign, but he never promised that his descendants would. And after, the kingdom just started to crumble. And the kingdom of Babylon is getting smaller because other nations are taking over. And there's also unrest within. Nabonidus has made the people of Babylon upset because of his worship of this other god. He's not there. His son Belshazzar is reigning and ruling. And during Cyrus's conquests, he actually defeats Nabonidus and exiles him so that he can't ever come back to Babylon. 
But the great city of Babylon stayed intact with Belshazzar still in power. So now the kingdom's getting even smaller. The city of Babylon, by the way, you remember two of the seven wonders of the world are in Babylon. The hanging gardens were made by Nebuchadnezzar for his wife to remind her of her home. And it was an amazing place. The city of Babylon was big and it had a couple of walls. There was an inner wall and there was an outer wall. And about this time, there's not a whole lot left of the Babylonian kingdom but the city of Babylon, which was still quite large and powerful. And Belshazzar decides that he's going to throw a party while this is all going on. Remember, his dad's been defeated and exiled. There's unrest in the kingdom. The kingdom itself is being dissolved. And he decides that he's going to have a party and he's going to get drunk in front of the thousands and they're going to let everybody bring their wives and their concubines. Unfortunately, it turned into an orgy. And in the midst of all this, he pulls out the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he says, let's go back to worshiping the gods of stone and wood and gold. In other words, I know you guys weren't really happy about my, my dad making you worship the moon god Sin. Let's go back to how things were. He's trying to calm everybody down because there's a lot of unrest. With his being, dad being gone much of the time and the size of the kingdom shrinking, the people of Babylon were looking for any type of unifying leader, even if it would be King Cyrus of the Persians. They didn't care. They just wanted a king who was going to be powerful and enlarge their kingdom again because it had been shrinking since Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar decides... We just need to have a party. And if we have a big stomping party, everybody will relax and we'll be okay. And on top of all that, even though he knew better, he decides, like I said, to dishonor the God of the Jews by drinking to the false gods out of the vessels from the Jewish temple. Little does he know that on this same night that we're reading about, and we'll study about it in more detail next week, little does he know that the Persians, the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians, because they're combined now, have dammed up the river Euphrates, which had flowed under the outer wall of the city. They have dammed it up so that it doesn't flow anymore under the wall, and their army can crawl under the wall in the empty bed of the river. But they got another problem. There's an inner wall. And people from inside the city who were ready for anybody else but Nabonidus and Belshazzar, opened the doors of the inside of the inner, inner city walls and allowed the Medes and the Persian army to come in. All this is happening while Belshazzar's having this party. And what did we read tonight? This night, the kingdom will be taken from you, and he was killed that night. How old was Daniel uh, I, Again, if we can do the math... I don't, I'd have to have you do the math. I can't answer it right offhand because I'm not really good at math. But yeah, but if you remember, he's around 13 when he was taken captive. If you calculate roughly the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and how long he reigned and stuff, you can do the math. He's definitely older in years, but he's still going to serve on a couple other kings in Babylon. We're going to deal with who Darius the Mede is next week. Because if you ever do a study of who Darius, because it said Darius the Mede came and ruled afterwards. There's a lot of question mark as to who Darius the Mede is when we get to history. We'll deal with that next week. But with all that we've looked at tonight, 
I can't help but just tell you how much I felt burdened to pray for our country. Folks, it doesn't look good for us. Unless there's a true repentance, there does come a point where the God who hasn't dealt with it fully yet will deal with it. But let me remind you of something in Romans chapter 1. In verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all wickedness in mankind because they suppress the truth by their wickedness. And do you know, after it talks about how God's revealed himself, it says at the end of chapter 1 that one of the evidences that God has given a nation over to judgment is that he gives them over to their shameful lusts, men with men and women with women. And what have we done as a nation? We've now, from the Supreme Court, say it's okay. You can choose whatever sex you want to be, male or female. Marriages of homosexuals is okay. Folks, I'm not anti-homosexual. I love everybody. But I also am pro-God and his truth. And he said that's sin. And there's all types of sin. That's just one of many. But the Bible says that there comes a point where men don't respond to his truth and he gives them over to their shameful lusts. A judgment's coming. A judgment's coming. And it's overdue in some people's eyes. I don't know. Well, HR5 is going to be the epitome. Again, I don't want to get into political stuff. I'm just saying this. The judgment's coming. The judgment's coming. And I don't know when or how, but because of who God is, he's patient. He's been real patient. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. But he'll by no means clear the guilty. And so, folks, make sure you know him and you're ready for what's about to happen whenever it happens. And pray for our nation. Pray for our nation. Pray for his mercy to continue a little longer. But as many of you have heard me say over the years, I don't find the United States in the last days in the Bible. There's lots of reasons why that could be. We're not going to get into that tonight. But the short version is simply this. The God who brought judgment on Babylon and is going to bring judgment on every nation at some point, he determines when they come into power and when they shrink. If he's going to continue in his pattern, a judgment is coming for us very, very soon. And I don't know anything more than that. But be praying that you are in the right way and the right relationship with God. I love you. We'll see you next week.